I want you to choose which of, which of two groups of people are more likely to say the following things, a 15-year-old or a 25-year-old? Is a 15-year-old or 25-year-old more likely to say, uh, getting up in front of people, I hate that. Oh, I don't like doing church stuff, that's lame. Somebody else can take care of it. Why is that my problem? Choose between those two. Now, if we take our average age of students at somewhere in 20, you have a choice to either act older than your age or younger than your age. <laughs> uh, you know the right answer, which one you want to do. We'd love to have students taking responsibility for these liturgical ministries. And uh, as, as a place where, on a small scale, you can become more comfortable as a way of serving in this, in this very small, limited way. Right? It's, not a, it's not a big deal, but it's a great place to practice things that will serve you well in parish life in the years ahead, and certainly will help things go more smoothly in our organization here before Mass as well. Um, hence, no heat. <laughs> we'll, we'll get that squared away next time. Although maybe not. It's up to you. Guardian angels and patron saints, pray for us. Our first reading today, our gospel, I'd like to speak a little bit about how these both, in their own way, foreshadow the holy sacrifice of the Mass and reveal something of, of great importance to us. These events of the Old Testament and of the public ministry of Jesus, each in their own way, echo and point to a truth that's taking place here in its fullness and in, in, in reality. Our first reading today can't really understand without a little primer on uh, some of the history of the people of Israel and what point in that history this takes place, the reading of the law. Ezra, the priest, and Nehemiah, the governor, they have been returned to the land of Israel from exile. In 586 BC, the Babylonian Empire invades Judea, surrounds Jerusalem, lays it to siege, conquers it, destroys the city, destroys the temple, and then carries off into exile a significant portion of the, of the Israelite community. Their leaders, their religious um, scholars, many of their political leaders, a systematic dismantling of their culture and their life. They're carried off into exile in Babylon. Another empire comes along, conquers the Babylonians. They're much more, let's say, inclusive about their policies over conquered territories and say, oh, no, 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 we don't want to ruin your culture. We want you to be very happy. That's the secret to success. You stay right where you are. You live the way you want to live. Just make sure you pay your taxes, and everything will be fine. So they're sent home, glorifying God. But what do they return to? A, a wasteland, right? something that um, had been entrusted to them and promised to them by God as part of his covenantal fidelity to them. All of this had been taken away because of their lack of fidelity. And so they begin the process of rebuilding, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding their culture and their society. Part of that, as they sift through the ruins of the temple, is the discovery of these scrolls of the Torah, the sacred texts of the people of Israel. And those are brought out and read aloud to the community, read aloud to the people who have been brought back from exile and those who remain there all the while, but more or less uh, kept in a, in a deeply oppressed state. They're free now, and they get to listen to what it is that makes them to be Jews. The words of the law revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai, and which are the condition for their 
ability to, to live in a way that, that pleases God, in a, to live in a way that's in accordance with his will. Interestingly enough, the response is weeping. It doesn't say why, but we could probably guess why that is. First, a reminder of all that they'd suffered in the previous generations, 70, 80 years of exile. The destruction of everything that they held most dear, including the dwelling place of God on earth, the holy temple, the place where sacrifice was to be offered for the forgiveness of sins. And that all of that had been taken away and all of those realizations come flooding back. Sorrow, grief, very natural responses. But so too, the law was a burden. It was hard. And I suppose living in such a way as to not be under that burden, however difficult that would have been for other reasons, the loss of, of identity and loss of the sense that God is with us, nonetheless probably meant, oh, this is going to cost us a lot. This is going to be hard. The law, as St. Paul tells us, does not save. Sacrifices must be offered again and again for the forgiveness of sin. But nothing definitively writes our relationship with God. At least under the old covenant. And so, really what the law is meant to offer are the conditions for a pleasing offering to God. This is an important part of our prayer at Mass. You may or may not notice again and again, particularly in the first Eucharistic prayer, which, which I'm almost always going to be using here at Mass, there's a repeated emphasis on sacrifice and a repeated emphasis pleading with God to look favorably on our offering. Receive this. Don't reject it. That obviously implies that there would be a situation where it would be rejected. We would make it in such a way that God would not accept it. That's not just a courteous rhetorical flourish, a a way of humbly approaching God or not making demands too forcefully. No, it's an urgent request. Please, accept this prayer. Accept this sacrifice and this offering. At each Mass in which the Roman canon or the first Eucharistic prayer is offered, there's a little passage I'd like to zero in on in particular. Those of you who are here for Mass on Wednesday will uh, recognize this, but I, I think it bears repeating. There's a particular part where the priest prays, be pleased to look favorably with a serene and kindly countenance on this our offering. As once you were pleased to accept the sacrifice of Abel, the sacrifice of Abraham, our father in faith, and the offering of bread and wine by your high priest Melchizedek. Those three names are mentioned. All come from the book of Genesis, in the very initial chapters of Genesis. And they're all very important because they teach us something crucial about the nature of the offering that we're making here. If you don't know the story of Abel, Abel was the brother of Cain, and Cain and Abel were the first children born to Adam and Eve after they were cast out of the garden. They were also the first to offer sacrifice to God. Cain was a farmer and offered the fruits of the ground. Abel was a shepherd and sacrificed one of the lambs of his flock. God accepts Abel's sacrifice and rejects Cain's. It doesn't say in the book of Genesis why that is, but the implication, the unstated, implicit 
way of, of kind of drawing a conclusion from that is that Abel offered something that was fundamentally more valuable than Cain did. It was harder to raise animals. It was more rare to slaughter and eat them because of the difficulties in raising them and bringing them to the point where they, they could nourish. And they were always the choicest portions that were offered in sacrifice. So Abel does something to indicate that if we're going to offer something pleasing to God, it should be our very best. It shouldn't be just what we have left over. Abraham, just a few chapters later in the book of Genesis, he too offers a sacrifice. He has the title, the father of faith, our father in faith, for several different episodes in his life. But, but most importantly, for the sacrifice of his son Isaac, the son of the promise, who had been given to him in his old age as a kind of miracle. Well, it was a miracle. Sarah was past childbearing years. Abraham was as good as dead as the scriptures tell us. And yet, God who promised them a son fulfilled that. And then he asked for that son to be sacrificed. I gave you a descendant and will make your, de your descendants as numerous as the sands upon the shore of the sea, but you're going to have to kill him first. Abraham clearly doesn't understand why God would ask this of him. Yet, he takes his son, to the top of the mountain, prepares the altar, has the knife over him until at the very last moment an angel stays his hand. Why did Abraham do that? He was obedient. He was obedient out of love. I will do what the God who made me and created me and sets me on my path asks me to do because that's what he deserves. I don't have to understand. I would like to. But there's something here that surpasses my understanding. And so I surrender. So Abel teaches us what we're to sacrifice, our very best. But Abraham teaches us how. We do so out of a generosity, a loving obedience that chooses what is asked and does so out of love. Melchizedek is a little more difficult. The third person mentioned in the Eucharistic prayer, asking that God would look favorably on our sacrifice, reminds us who it is that is to offer sacrifice and under what form it is to be offered. Melchizedek, as St. Paul tells us in the letter to the Hebrews, does not have a genealogy. He shows up out of nowhere in the Old Testament narrative. He's described as the king of Salem and a priest of the Most High God, which is strange because there are no priests at this point. Priests don't come until Moses, hundreds of years later, under the Levites. He's a priest of the Most High God. Abraham offers, offers him a tenth of the spoils that he has taken in battle. And then Melchizedek offers, as a sacrifice, bread and wine. The one who is to offer the pleasing sacrifice to God is the one appointed by God to do so. And he does so under the form of this symbolic offering of bread and wine. Now each of these three, Abel, Abraham, and Melchizedek, foreshadow Christ in their own way. Because Christ offers what is most precious. The most precious thing of all. Something that surpasses all human effort that ever could be gathered together in one place. Because he's God. 
And he offers himself. What could possibly be more valuable than that? He does so out of perfect loving obedience for the will of his Father. Father, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will be done, but yours. That act of loving obedience was sufficient to expiate the guilt of the entire human race. And he does so at the explicit appointment of his Father. He has been sent from his throne, from on high, entered into the lowliness of the human state, walked our walk, talked our talk, lived our life, and died our death, and rose to new life. He and he alone offers the pleasing, acceptable sacrifice to God for the forgiveness of sins. And he does so under the form of his flesh, given to us as bread and wine. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He is the perfect priest. And he does it perfectly. Why then do we need to keep asking God to accept this? If it's so perfect, it's done. It's in. Signed, sealed, delivered. Don't worry about it. Why do we keep doing this? Why do we keep asking? Look favorably. Because we can either be spectators or participants in this sacrifice. That is, your loving obedience to, the heaven, to our Heavenly Father, when it's united with this sacrifice, reaches its goal. And this perfect offering, the offering once for all, that's not repeated again and again, but is mystically present in its original form at every altar around the world. That begins to infuse itself into the way we offer ourselves. I'm captured and, and dragged along, as it were, provided I'm willing to be, as this prayer and this offering are raised by the hands of his holy angel to his altar on high in the sight of his divine majesty. So what we're praying for, then, is that we fervently cooperate with what's happening. That we don't just sit back and watch it unfold where our minds are elsewhere. A mere physical presence rather than an interior communion and cooperation with everything that's being done and said. Given to us through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. May we, too, fix our eyes on Jesus as those, disciples, as those Jews did in that synagogue in our gospel reading looking intently at him so that what he says and does, we say and do. And the Lord look favorably on what we say and what we do. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.